Hey, thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you're crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. You know, it must have been hard. I mean, growing up with siblings already has its challenges. It's kind of sanctifying, you know, sharing and sibling rivalries and arguments and boundaries and competition. But when your older brother says that he's God and your parents believe him, that's tough. You talk about living in somebody's shadow. I mean, regardless of how awesome of a brother Jesus was, that's still a very difficult place to be because you can't argue with your brother. You'd be wrong every time. You know, every time you fight with Jesus, it'd be your fault. You can't tattle on him because you'd be the one getting the whooping every time. When cousins and aunts and uncles and family and friends, when they would come over, you know who they just want to see. They just want to see Jesus. And yet there's something extraordinary, very special about little brother James. Nobody knew Jesus quite like James did, sharing a room and bunking together and running through the alleys of Nazareth, playing tag and and pranks and racing home after Sabbath worship and sharing clothes. I mean, nobody knew Jesus quite like James did. And even though James had his doubts, and he did, I mean, at one point Jesus was preaching and James went to go hear his big brother preach and James tried to take Jesus home. Hey, you lost your mind, big bro. A few screws are loose. Let's, let's get you home. You're embarrassing yourself. Like even though James struggled at times, he eventually saw his older brother for who he was, God. James worshiped his older brother as God. I mean, what would it take for your sibling to convince you that they're God? Quite a lot. James knew Jesus best. If Jesus wasn't perfect, James would be the first to tell us. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, James would be the loudest to say, I told you he wasn't that special. If, if Jesus was the greatest con man of all time, James would be the first to tell you. And yet James writes a book about how to follow Jesus better. A fantastic book, a book that will guide, a book that will challenge us for the next 10 weeks. If you grab a Bible, we're going to be in James chapter one. If you need to bring a Bible, you've got Bibles in the chairs. It's page 1011 in those Bibles uh, in the seats. Otherwise, you know, a lot of people use their phones and tablets. But James chapter one is where we're going to be. Some people age really well, don't they? And I'm not talking physically. I'm talking just like their spirit. Some people age really well. Like, it's like the older they get, the more fun they get and the more wise that they get. Uh, this summer, I, I had the privilege of spending time with, um, with, with this older gentleman f- for a week up, up, at, up at camp. And um, he, he's a little bit hard of hearing. He's, he's very much older. But um, the guys, the younger guys were hanging out with me and him. They just kept on, we kept on talking about this guy is so wise. He is such a cool hang. Like you ever know somebody like that? They're older, but they're just such a great hang. Even in their older age, they're, they're still very influential. Younger people really look up to them because they're just fun to be around. They're very solid. And then there's people, the majority who don't age so well and they're bitter. They're opinionated. They're negative. They're very, very critical of everything. And when we run into those people, a lot of times we think, I don't want to be that, right? I want to age well. I I want to get better with age. And I bet you do as well. In fact, James here in this text today tells us how. Let me pray and we'll jump into this. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for James, for the the man that you uh, really crafted, so to speak. 
You chiseled at this guy for, for so long as, as Jesus' little brother, but then a very influential pastor and writer. God, you are going to speak through today's text because you always do. This is your word. We ask that the Holy Spirit illuminate this text to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the time of this writing, he's in his 30s. He's a prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. He owns a little home in the quieter corner of, of Jerusalem. He never thought he'd live here. He's a small town boy from the backwoods of a little town of Nazareth. Now he's in the big city. He still smiles as he walks these streets because each cobblestone just takes him back. See, his mom and dad used to bring the family here annually. And he'd run these streets following Jesus as they'd whip around corners and squeeze through crowds and duck under food carts. His smile softens when he walks past the main street of Jerusalem, thinking of his older brother carrying the cross on, on these stones and his mom Mary following behind weeping. He can't pass that main street without thinking of the trail of blood and the tears. It's a bittersweet city to live in. The fond memories of childhood always seem to lead to the nightmare memories of the crucifixion. But the tomb down the street is still empty. And it always recaptures his smile. See, leading the church in this town, it's not easy. This church is a mega church. It's thousands of people gathering, not weekly, but daily. Constantly, he's meeting with people and teaching and facilitating meetings and, and counseling. Thankfully, he finds time to sit down and write this letter, and it's a timeless letter. And he writes this. If you have your Bibles, look at it, verse 1. He identifies himself. He says, James. It, by the way, fun little fact, James in Hebrew is Jacob, which means Jacob. So when Jesus was playing with James, you would hear Jesus saying, Jacob, Jacob, meaning Jacob. Now, we're reading this letter. This letter was originally written in Greek. And so when we read James, we, we read this, we don't read Jacob, we read James. So we'll just call him James. But he went by Jacob. But James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice what he calls himself here. I think that's pretty amazing if you think about it. See how he identifies himself? Servant. Just servant. How many of us would have added a little bit more? James. You may have heard of my mom, Mary. You may have heard of my dad, Joseph. Also, my big brother is Jesus Christ. You may have heard about my family because uh, we're kind of a big deal. And, and they are, right? Pretty amazing if you think about it. Joseph and Mary raised God in flesh, and then they raised two other kids who wrote books of the Bible, Jude and James. If Joseph and Mary were in our church today, we'd have them leading a parenting class. Pretty good track record. Three kids who are like major players in scripture. One of them is God. Like James comes from this powerhouse of a family, but James doesn't leverage his last name here. Doesn't flex what up? It's your boy, leader of the first church, leader of the biggest church. He doesn't drop his, his family name. Right off the bat, I respect this guy. There's this humble simplicity about James, and we're drawn to humble simplicity. He's not flashy. He simply wants to be known as a servant, just a servant, not brother of Jesus, not pastor, not son of. It doesn't matter. Just a servant. And that's convicting right there. Because how many of us, come on, if we're honest, how many of us were so quick to like point to our resume or flex or get on stage? James just quickly points out, ah, I'm just a servant, just a servant. And he continues on, he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, anytime you read uh, the Bible, especially if it's, if it's a letter in the New Testament, it's always important to know uh, who the letter was written to. Because when you do, it puts everything into context. 
It'd be kind of like if, um, if you found some random letters. Let's say you, you came over to my house tonight and um, you know, I'm making dinner and uh, you're really rude and you start reading some of like some old mail on my, on my uh, counter. And, and if you read them, you could maybe understand a little bit, you know, of, of these letters. But if I told you, oh, that pile of letters right there, those are like really old letters. Those are from my grandparents. My, my grandpa was at war and my grandma was back home and they were engaged. And so they were writing back and forth to try to find a house and plan their life if he returned. Well, now those letters make a lot of sense because you know the sender and the recipient. It's the same thing in scripture. When we don't know the sender or the recipient, we miss a lot of, of really what's going on. So James is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The dispersion was something that happened hundreds of years before Jesus. It spread the Jews all around the, all around the known world. Now that was hundreds of years ago, but this, this idea or the, this term, the dispersion, just kind of stuck. So all of those Jewish settlements all around the world, they would call themselves Jews of the, disper, the dispersion, the, the diaspora. So when James wrote this, I have to remember he's pastoring back in Jerusalem, and in the church in Jerusalem began to face very, very uh, harsh persecution. You can read about it actually in Acts chapter 8. But, but James's church is under heavy persecution. So Jesus resurrects, church explodes, James is in charge of this, and then the government goes after the church. And so the church scatters. And the church scatters to all of these Jewish settlements all around the known world, the diaspora, the dispersion. And this is actually how the church grew worldwide. I mean, this is what Jesus told his followers to do, isn't it? Remember Jesus' last words when he's, when he's going up, when he's ascending into heaven? He said, go into Jerusalem, and then what? Into Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. But the early church wasn't as perfect as we sometimes like to think it was. The early church was awesome, don't get me wrong. But like us, they had their problems. They didn't want to do what Jesus told them to do. Because they liked Jerusalem. They had their circle of friends in Jerusalem. Everything was familiar in Jerusalem. It was comfortable there. And so God allows it to get very uncomfortable persecution. And so the people start packing up and leaving to Judea and beyond. So James is back in Jerusalem. God wants him there. And James is writing a letter to all of his old church friends, friends who moved away to start other groups and churches in all of these Jewish settlements all around the known world. And his friends are living a hard life. They've picked up and they've moved everything to start a brand new life. Many who are reading this letter, they've lost loved ones. Most of them are poor. They're barely making it. They left Jerusalem so quickly. They could only take what they could carry on their back. They lost their community. They lost their circle of friends. Like, life is hard. And when difficulty happens, it's the old cliche. You either get better or bitter when difficulty happens. We saw this on display a few years ago with COVID and politics, didn't we? Like our, our world was, was uh, really shook with, with the pandemic and uh, political tension brought everything to fever pitch. And so what happened is, and, and, and you probably experienced this, but like friendships were broken and families were divided over all of this. And some people became just really, really bitter. And you might know some of these people. It's like bitter people upset about COVID or upset about their job or, or politics or, or masks or, or vaccinations. And they spiraled into bitterness. They can't get past their own opinions. And maybe you went there as well. Like I'm, I think we're all guilty of it at, at some level. I, I am as well. And so what happens is we go throughout life and we're either choosing, when anything happens to us, we're either choosing, am I going to get bitter about this or better? Things are happening, job changes, friendship changes, financial struggles. Am I going to get bitter about this? But God wants to use these things to sanctify us, to mature us, to strengthen us, to bring us closer to him, to make us better. 
And so James here is this really big believer that every Jesus follower, all of us, should really age well. Because as life goes on, we should be responding, we should be responding well. So James sits down, he, he's, his heart is bleeding for his old church friends. He knows that they can easily spiral into bitterness or they can get better. And so he writes them this, verse 2. He writes, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. The, the word here is, is siblings. But count it all joy, my, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, if you write in your Bibles, which I really encourage you to do, because for the next 10 weeks, you're going to be unpacking this book and mining gold from it. So like, grab a pen, mark it up, or highlight on your phone or, or, or whatever. It's, just, it's what we do with, with our Bibles. But especially here in verse 2, because there's so much in this verse right here that really sets up the entire book. First thing I want to point out here is, is the word trials. When we read this word, we often think of like, you know, you read this word, what do you think of? You just think of like bad things happening to you, right? You know, like a health problem is a trial, a job loss is a trial, and, and it, is, it is a trial. To this culture, though, a trial was that and more. The trial to, to this culture meant also temptation. And it makes sense because every time something bad happens to you, you face a temptation in how you respond to it. To, to not respond well. In fact, you can make the case that every temptation you face goes back to something happening to you. And that's not an excuse, but you, you, you could make that case. Like a temptation to uh, overeat or, or eat what you shouldn't happened because this craving hit you. And so this culture would say, well, that's a trial. That craving hit you is a trial, but also your temptation to not eat what you know you shouldn't eat, that, that is also a trial. A temptation to look at porn happened because you know, loneliness or rejection, that trial hits you. And so well, a lot of times we read this just thinking, okay, well, this is just like a, a job loss or a health issue. To this society, though, it's a coin with two sides. It's difficulty in life and the temptation that always comes with it. Now, for the sake of today, because we're actually going to look at temptation more later on. James is going to rebring it up. We're going we're gonna to read trials and how we read. It's just difficult things that, that happen to us. The key phrase, though, <coughs> in verse 2 is count it. This is a huge key phrase. Two big words in understanding this verse. Because here's the thing. A lot of people have completely misunderstood this verse. And maybe you're guilty of this. Um, I, I have been. But they look at this verse and, and they use it as like a bat for hurting people. It's like, all right, count it all joy when you face trials. All right. Oh, you're hurting? Well, bam, James says you should feel good about it and be happy about your problem. Eh, it's not what he means. You know, you lose your job, you get cheated on, or, you know, you get sick, you lose a loved one. Paul's not saying, hey, slap a big old smile on. That would be ludicrous. And that, honestly, come on, that would be fake. Count it. Count it is the key words here. So I want to dive into this just a little bit more. James, again, he originally wrote this in Greek. And the Greek word that he uses here is, a, is the, uh, Greek word, the, the Greek word hegomai. Hegomai, which means to have an opinion about. Or a better way to say it is to think this way. And this really changes the whole idea of this verse. So James doesn't write them and tell them, hey, smile, fake it. He says, no, let's think properly here. I know you're hurting everyone. Let's think properly here. And he's giving us point number one. And my goodness, this is huge. You want to get better as you age and not bitter like most people. You want to age well. Number one, focus on how you think instead of how you feel. Focus on how you think, not how you feel. And this is so key. Because when you have that breakup or you lose that job or you feel depression or anxiety, when you're stressed and you're overwhelmed, when you're experiencing loneliness, this is when we tend to fall into bitterness. 
James says here, here's what you do. Focus on how you think. Think properly. And he's not saying feelings are bad. Feelings are feelings. It's okay to feel stressed. In fact, I think you should feel stressed from time to time because it means you're doing something. You're stretching yourself. It's good to feel stressed from time to time. And sometimes we feel down. It's okay to feel down. Feelings are feelings. But they can't guide you because feelings will always guide you into chaos. Feelings are an indicator. It's kind of like your smoke alarm in your kitchen. What happens when you burn toast? Smoke detector goes off, right? It's like, dang it, burn the toast. And now you have to like, you know, unplug the smoke detector or take out the, the battery or whatever problem solved. What happens when your house is on fire? Same exact thing happens, right? Smoke detector makes the same exact noise. The smoke detector makes the same thing, the same noise for a burnt toast or a house on fire. <clears throat> so when it goes off, you have to investigate the problem. Why is this thing going off? Ah, oh, it's, just, it's just burnt toast. It's the same with our feelings. Our feelings are like an alarm, but sometimes, and sometimes it's legit. Those feelings are pointing to an issue that really does need addressing. But often our feelings, they can just be burnt toast. It's not really not that big of a deal. You don't really need to feel that way. Like for example, uh, not too long ago, I, I, I went through like a, a little bit of a health scare. I'm fine, not a big deal. But like at, during, during the time, like things were kind of up in the air. I was like, oh, dang it. Like, man, I got like girls and I want to walk them down the aisle. I'm like kind of freaking out in my own head and I'm losing sleep over this. So my feelings, my, my smoke detector was just kind of going off. I felt that same feeling when I watch football and my team is about to lose. <laughs> Right? So it's like, it's the same feeling, but it's like one thing I really don't need to worry about here, but one thing I, I kind of do. It's all up here. James is saying, focus not on what you feel, because that can lead you everywhere. Focus on how you think. Don't run with everything you feel. Because some of us, come on, some, with some of us, like the smoke detector goes off, and we're like screaming and grabbing the kids and bolting out of the house when it's just burnt toast. We're just like running wild with our feelings. Like in psychology, they call this like a low EQ. It's a low emotional intelligence. Everything is very feeling oriented. There's not much logic, uh, not directing emotions with our thinking. And as a result, there's lots of drama and reactions and lots of hurt feelings and lots of broken relationships and lots of stained relationships and lots of bitterness. Very little logic. It's the main operating system uh, today in our world. James is saying here, nah, come on, we're followers of Jesus. We act differently, all right? So let's keep our head on straight. Feel feelings, that's natural. But focus on what you think. Because how you think will eventually impact how you feel. And what you think will impact what you do. But when we twist that order around and really run with our feelings, we just spiral out of control. The way to get better and not bitter is to shape our thinking. Not run with our feelings like we want to, but intentionally shape our feeling, or our, 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 our uh, thinking. The way to shape our thinking is by what we feed it. And this is so important. You know the old saying, um, you are what you eat? You ever heard that old saying? There's a, there's a, there's a lot of truth to that, um, especially if you're working out, because as your body repairs your, its muscles and it creates cells, it uses the food that you ate. So like right now, your body is literally building itself by what you ate earlier. Maybe that's a good thing or maybe that's a bad thing. But like, you know, if you're eating well, fresh food and, you know, protein, your cells, your muscles, you will be healthier and stronger. But if you're eating garbage, your body is literally making itself out of the garbage. And so you feel bloated and, and you feel tired. It's the same exact thing with your mind. If you're constantly putting garbage in your mind, you're going to have garbage thinking. And, and your garbage thinking is going to make your feelings just out of whack. We're seeing this all around us. Aren't we? 
a, a while back, earlier this year, my wife, she's incredible. Um, she's got a promotion at, at, at her hospital. She's rocking her job. She schools our kids. I don't know how she does. Like every week she's always making food for, for someone in our church, all these Bible studies. The girl's just a rock star. And, and I got permission to, to say this, but um, like many people earlier this year, she was really struggling because our kid had gotten taken out of sports uh, because of mandates. And so that really put her into a funk. And understandably so, I was hurting for my daughter, but also for my wife, who's really hurting for my daughter. So around March or so, I took her on a date um, and we ended up talking. I just wanted to hear, okay, just tell me what's bothering you. And so, you know, she's telling all this stuff that's bothering her, some of the same stuff that's bothering us. And as her husband, after dinner, I was like, I just made a request. And it's not, she didn't have to do it, but I'm glad that she was up for it. But I asked her, I said, babe, can you just, can you stop watching the news? And can you cut out political podcasts? Uh, stay off social media or just unfollow those political pages for a while. Like change your mental diet. I've done this with, with people who come in with anxiety, you know, cause they know I have anxiety. It's like, All right, what do I do? It's like, or they're, or they're fear, right? They're freaking out about like the world's going down the toilet or the world's gonna end. It's like smoke detector is just going off. And I always said, just All right, let's do like a six week mental diet. All right, put a pause on the news and political podcasts and socials. And those who do, after like a few weeks, they're different. I'll talk to them, it's like amazing. They're like thinking clearly, there's less fear, feelings aren't out of whack, they're enjoying relationships, they're just more fun because they stopped putting worry and anger in their mind disguised as being informed. And I'm not anti-news, but you know this. You turn on the news and that person telling you the news, it's their job, they need you to tune in tomorrow. So they have to make something a really big deal so that you'll tune in tomorrow. Nobody's going to tune in tomorrow if you finish the newscast of saying, hey, have a great day. Life on planet Earth is far better than it was 500 years ago. So just enjoy your night. Like, no, I need to sell you a crisis to get you to tune in tomorrow. Social media is similar. If you're on social media, you have a personal algorithm that shows you what you get fired up about the most to keep you coming back for more. And I don't blame them. It's just business. But as a result, we have a society addicted to filling our minds with garbage and our feelings are out of whack and there's so much drama and there's very low emotional intelligence. Depression and anxiety is skyrocketing and people are becoming just bitter because it's garbage in, garbage out. That's why I think James is really onto something here. What are you feeding your mind with when you're struggling? That's a fantastic question to ask yourself. What are you feeding your mind, period? Is it news and social media and reels and porn and unhealthy television and immoral music and lyrics and, and, and gossip? Like that's what most of us run to, especially when we're hurting. I just want to veg on garbage. Or are you intentionally shaping your mind, especially when you're hurting? Understanding, man, I'm struggling here. I'm going through it. I'm hurting. This is going to be a mental battle. And so I better feed my mind well. I'm reading God's word. I'm listening to that which builds me up and takes me deeper into God, not running with how I feel. Don't go veg. Intentionally shape your mind, condition it, feed it well. So James writes, he writes, when you're struggling, think this way, that this obstacle, that this thing you're going through, this problem, this issue, you don't have to feel joy about it because you probably won't, but think of it as joy. Why? Why would like losing a job or getting a health problem? How can I see that as joy? Like James, you hit your head playing with Jesus as a kid. Like that's crazy. Why would I think of this problem as joy? Well, he says, uh, verse three, he says, for you know that the testing of your faith 
produces steadfastness. This is why you should count it joy, for the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Testing of your faith. What's he talking about here? But we live in a broken world, don't we? Like our, our bodies, our relationships, everything is stained by sin. As a result, bad things happen. Our bodies break. I literally, two weeks ago, injured my knee trying to get my boots off. That's how old I'm getting. I injured my knee getting my boots off. So now they're just on, I guess. Like, they're just always on. <laughs> my knee is, is fallen. Our relationships, everything breaks, producing hardship in the world around us. And at some degree, you're facing this, right? You have a wayward child, or there's a fracture in the family, or there's job difficulty, or there's a health issue. James calls these tests. Any bad test takers in here? I was a horrible test taker. I, I made it through school only because I could, I could write and speak. Tests, I, I almost always fail tests. I won't even tell you what I got on my ACT because if by some miracle you do have some respect for me, you will lose it hearing what my ACT score. I just, I'm a terrible test taker. And so I don't love this verse. Like tests, I hate tests. James is saying life is this series of tests. Every season of life you go through is a test. And after you pass a test, you proceed to the next grade, so to speak. It's this process of maturing. We call this sanctification, the process of, of getting better and stronger and more mature and more, becoming more like Jesus Christ. God's vision for your life is for you to age well, to become stronger mentally, more gracious with age, more loving, more of a servant, more kind, more wise. And as you pass, you graduate. But if you run from these trials or you run from these tests, you remain at that level of immaturity and you spiral into bitterness. This is why, and I'm not saying you have to agree, but this is why James is saying, think of your trials as joy. Not as feeling joy, but think of it as joy because God uses difficulty to make you better, to bring you closer to him. And for most people and most Christians, it makes them bitter, but God wants to use it to make it better. James uh, is giving us point number two. He says, see your trials as opportunities, not as curses. See your trials as opportunities, not as curses. And I get how offensive this is. I totally get this. Because I know this, someone in this room are really going through it. Spouse deserted the family, left you to pick up all the pieces. You lost a loved one. Your child is a mess and you are hurting for them. And so for the pastor to get up and say, hey, see it as an opportunity. Okay, that just, that seems insensitive at best. I get it. But what's the alternative then? See, what happened to you or what is happening to you, it hurts, it might have you buried. Are you really going to let it destroy you? Do you really want your life defined by that thing? Like, I get how offensive this is, but the reality is every time you hurt, every time something happens, you're faced with a major decision. Are you gonna surrender to God, allow him to grow you, worship through this, respond well, oh, hurt, but do the right thing and do the hard thing in the pain? Or are you gonna hold on to this, be lazy with it, do what you wanna do with it, let your feelings guide you and let it take you further and further down? When I was a kid, there was a, there was a guy in our church. Uh, he was a bigger guy. I love this guy. He had a great family. Uh, he's just kind of like a jolly guy. I just remember him being just always jolly around, around church. But when I got into middle school, um, things changed. He kind of became like an Eeyore. And it never made sense to me because he had like this really cool family. His adult, his adult kids all got along really well. They were a lot of fun. He had lots of grandkids that got along really well. They were a lot of fun. He had this beautiful property out in the country. Like he had like a good life. But he was just like an Eeyore. Uh, what happened was, is, as he was nearing retirement, he was laid off. He was a blue-collar guy who had, had spent decades working in this factory, and the, and the factory had closed down. 
uh, just like a couple of years before he retired. And that really sunk him because he finished his, his last couple of years doing something that he didn't like as much. And so he just spiraled into this. Like you could hardly have a conversation with this guy without him bringing up being laid off by this factory. He became very bitter, hard to be around, and couldn't enjoy his golden years because of that thing that happened. Even at his funeral, it was just hard not to like think about this guy's life being defined by that layoff. Like tragic, really. But this is most people just running with how we feel, and then, and then we feel cursed by it. I compare that to this older lady that, that I, I knew growing up. Her name was Edna, and she was like my grandma. She was elderly, but my mom always had her over to the house all the time. This woman had gone through some tough times. She became a believer later in life. She was not married to the best of guys, and he had passed away, leaving her nothing. Uh, she had a son with a very severe disability, uh, dealt with him getting bullied his whole life. He had died young, so he, she had went to his funeral. Her daughter was a mess, stole from her. But you would sit with this, this older woman, and you couldn't help but be blessed. Like, she was so kind and so encouraging, and she was so generous, even though she had very little. Like, she seemed, as James writes in verse 4, like she just lacked nothing. She had many trials, but through those trials, she responded well. She did the hard thing, and she surrendered to God, and she worshiped through it, and she did the right thing. And God grew that beautiful elderly lady. And my fear is that many of us are the first guy. We have, we have every reason to rejoice. God has given us so much. God has put people in our lives and blessings. He has some hardships, but we're so blessed. But we're walking around just ticked off about this and that, COVID, politics, that family member. And the littlest of things are sending us into this, like, this bitterness with age. It's a choice. We're making it now. How we respond determines how we age. James continues on. <clears throat> he says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. This is the, the key word here is the word let. Allow steadfastness. And your translation might say perseverance. Uh, the word that James uses here, steadfast or, or perseverance, is the, is the Greek word uh, hypomune, which means to remain, to remain under. It's an interesting word, isn't it? To remain under. It's kind of like when I was growing up, I played football. I loved it. But anytime there was a fumble, there was always a dog pile. You ever see these? Like the both teams are jumping onto the ball, big pile, everybody's piled up and everyone's wrestling and, and fighting for the ball. And when I started playing football, I hated those. Like, you know, I'd, I'd jump on the ball and then like big Albert would come and jump on top of you. And if your finger was close to another guy's helmet, he would try to bite you. And like terrible things would happen in those dog piles. And I would hate it. It was just so gross and it hurt. And so I would always squirm out. I got, oh, listen, I don't need the football that much. I'll play defense. I don't care. And the coach would grab me by the face mask and throw me back in. Like, get in there, boy. Get back in. Toughen up. Fight for it. Get stronger. Let's go. Why? Because the greatest opportunity lied under that dog pile. It was a loose ball. So I had to remain under my coach's authority and remain under that dog pile. And this is the exact image that James is painting. Remain under your marching orders and remain in that difficulty. Things are going to get tough you're going to feel squashed, but you must remain under, submissive, remaining under God's orders, submissive to what God is asking of you and what he has called you to do. And it's giving us our, our third point, and that is don't squirm out. Don't squirm out. Because we spend so much of our lives trying to squirm out of the very thing that God intentionally has us in to grow us, to become more like Jesus. Truth is, often what we want to remove, God wants to use. The very thing we see as a curse often, and we want it removed from our life, 
might just be the biggest tool in God's hand. We put it into context. Think about the people that James is writing to. They're going through it. They're living in places they don't, they don't want to live. They're leaving everything behind. They're hurting and they're confused. Yet God used this time and these people to expand the church and raise more leaders. This was a very, very, very pivotal moment in church history. And they wanted it removed. What you want to remove, God wants to use. Don't squirm out. I know it's the first thing we want to do when something bad happens. Hey, I'm out. If my marriage is going to be like that, then I'm out. And if my parent is going to tell me to do that, I'm out. And if my counselor is telling me to do that, then I'm out. And if the Bible says that, well, then I'm out. If that's Illinois, then I'm out. It's our first reaction when we face something we don't like. But the greatest sign of immaturity is how quickly we squirm out of things. How quickly and how often we just quit. I'm not saying you should never switch jobs. Like if you, if you have something better lined up and, and your job is, you know, killing you and you've prayed and you've gotten wise counsel, like, yeah, take the better opportunity. There's a big difference between taking a better opportunity and squirming out. And we all know what that difference is. The temptation is to always squirm out of hardship. And most people do. And here's the big, here's the big thing. And it's not just quitting. It's not just quitting. Squirming out looks like sweeping things under the rug constantly. If the marriage needs attention, it's not healthy, just lots of eggshells, you're just squirming out and not stepping up every time you sweep. As a result, you just become bitter as time goes on, especially when you see healthier marriages. Good marriages just convict you because you've just been squirming out of your responsibility and yours. Squirming out looks like avoiding apologies. Squirming out looks like avoiding conversations you need to have. Squirming out looks like avoiding confrontation you need to have. Some of our lives are just defined by squirming out of every different thing. And as a result, you're not who you want to be. You're not who you could be. You're not who God made you to be. And deep down, you feel it. Get back in the dog pile. Remain under orders. Remain under what God has asked of you and get back in the dog pile in the difficulty. Why? Because the greatest opportunities are under. Better is under. And so remain under. Not a feel-good text, is it? This is not easy. The road to bitter is, is easy and, and more traveled. The road to better is lesser traveled, but it is far more beautiful. It's why, if you look at the, ne the next several verses through verse 18, James writes, God is the giver of good things. He's the giver of good things, so remain under him. He calls you to difficulty, but he's the one who holds the rewards. This is why we live by faith. I love thinking about it, though. I, I just, I love this picture. Words written by a hand that played catch with Jesus. And, and he writes this, not as some like empty self-help, here's how to be a better person. He writes this from eyes who watched a man live this out. We don't do this just to be better. We do this stuff because this is what it is to follow Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus did. Case in point, the night before that Jesus went to the cross, you remember the story? Jesus knows he's going to face crucifixion. He prays to the Father, take this cup. If there's any other way, I, 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 I don't want to do this. He didn't feel like going to the cross, but he went. And scripture says, for the joy set before him. He counted it joy to take the cross. He didn't see the cross as a curse happening to him. He counted it joy because it was his opportunity to connect you to God. And so he didn't squirm out. Jesus remained under. He remained under orders. He remained under. And then God called him out, out of the grave, to become the name that is above every name. 
This is why we do this. This is who we follow. I know it's not easy, but this is what we do. Your back might be against the wall. You might be in a miserable situation, miserable job, miserable marriage. You might be going through it, your bottom of the dog pile, just fighting for air. Don't you forget, you follow the one who conquered all. So remain under, because this is where it is to follow Jesus. It's why James writes in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He's blessed. He is blessed. He ages well. He's living to full potential. He is blessed. Oh, hardship, but happy and wise and fun and someone you gravitate to. He is blessed. So focus on how you think, not on how you feel. You see your trial as an opportunity. It's not a curse. It's an opportunity here. And don't squirm. This hardship is not the end. I, I know it might feel like it. This is not the end. The end's gonna be sweet. But we remain under to get it. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.